0: everybody to the latest episode of media sandwich a podcast where a guy just just talks to you about all the things going on in the world of pop culture including video games movies comics tv and more things other things last week talked a lot about twitter this week not as much talk about social media um but but a little bit maybe let's uh, get into that though in the order that you just received them uh order up first things first video games and uh well the big thing in the world of video games this week is that god of war ragnarok is releasing on wednesday that's a very very big deal it's a very big sequel one of the biggest sequels in video games this year arguably and uh since it's coming out this week that means the reviews are finally in the embargo is over and they are not a big surprise pretty dang positive uh, 2018's soft reboot of the franchise took a really wonderful step in an unexpected direction by focusing so much on that relationship between Kratos and his son. And, uh, that was great. And I think everybody really liked that this one doubles down on that. So, great, you know, uh, some time has passed, uh, Atreus has grown up a bit, he's eager to have his own life, be his own man, go on his own adventures and stuff, And to that end, the player controls him for segments of the game, which is pretty rad. Uh leads to a good strong shakeup in the gameplay, especially. Um that's what a lot of reviews have pointed out, is that as Kratos, the fight mechanics are the usual, you know? It's very weighty but naturally fluid kind of melee, a lot of axe and blade stuff, uh, as per usual, you know, a lot of combos and whatnot. But as Atreus, It's the range uh, fighting of, like, a bow and his magical abilities, so that's pretty smart. That's cool. In my opinion, game design is done right when the different player characters fight differently, not just to provide some variety, but also to illustrate their different viewpoints in the world that they're fighting through. Gotham Knights, maybe take a lesson from that, because your game is pretty plug-and-play with the four different player characters all of which essentially fight in pretty much the same way uh which i understand the limits of game design you're gonna have to do it that way uh to to you know let the player choose which character they want to play through the same mission in this case it's a lot more on rails Atreus has his own adventures kratos has his own adventures each one tailored to their style of fighting but Anyway, the fact that it kind of works into the narrative and how these guys are going to be a little bit at odds in this one, pretty cool, I think. Uh, by all accounts in the reviews, it's a simply just gorgeous game. Uh, the storyline is really nice and meaty too, especially. Uh, unexpectedly the side quests have a great amount of backstory and character work built into them which you don't always get in games like this. Sometimes side quests are really just really a pain in the butt usually like, "Oh, okay, let's, you know, take a break from this engaging story so that I can go all the way across the map to fetch an item so that I can bring it all the way across the map so that I can fight a guy and that's every side quest sometimes sometimes not in this one apparently the side quests are pretty good so that's cool uh the elements of this game that are getting less enthusiasm from the reviewers is the kind of rpg light style stuff that's going on in the menu system uh there's just like this sheer amount of things that are upgradable through several different types of in-game currency kind of uh, just a lot of stuff. Lots and lots of stuff. And it gets to be, according to some, kind of a slog. It's very copious. Every single weapon, every single piece of armor can be upgraded multiple times over. And the further you get into the game, the more stuff they drop on you in this system that's upgradable. So it's a little daunting. It's a little too much all at once. Um, uh, that stuff can be a lot of fun uh, when it's done in a game that kind of lends well to the RPG stuff and the upgrade, you know, the constant upgrading, the constant getting getting uh, uh, weapons and gear upgraded kind of thing. But in my opinion, God of War, it's just kind of the wrong venue for it. I go into a God of War game, you know, I'm looking for plot, I'm looking for satisfying fight mechanics and those are there from the sound of it. Those are definitely front and center in this game. There's just, like, a lot of chuffa pasted over the top of it with uh, that that light RPG element. And God of War is not an RPG series. But then again, hey, you know what? What AAA game series does not try this shit at this point? Remember when Red Dead Redemption 2 came out and everyone was like, well, I mean, it's gorgeous and... It's got a terrific story, it appears to have some kind of RPG elements to level up your horses and your guns and your various skills and your health and stamina meters, but it's the damnedest thing, we can't quite figure out how any of that works. The upgrade system is a little weird and clunky, and this would probably be a lot more fun without all of that stuff, it would be less you know, uh, immersive, but it would be a lot more fun. And that was kind of the main criticism of that game was this isn't what you would strictly speaking call fun. It feels like work because everything is so, you know, laser focused on upgradables and, uh, menu tiers and all of that stuff. And yeah, I mean, it was irritating. I love that game with all my little black heart. That's probably my favorite game in the last like five years, but I'd rather take the straightforward and or tedious upgrade system that's probably going on in Ragnarok over something that inscrutable again. That was nonsense, and not every game has to have RPG elements. My god. Uh, Hey, can I get a little catty for a second? I'm not a professional reviewer of games or movies or anything. I used to get paid to write reviews occasionally, but it was never my career. Can I get slightly bitchy? Can I get a little salty? Um, The review of God of War Ragnarok over on a particular, very large video game news website opens with such an over-the-top statement and an analogy that, quite frankly, I found baffling and... I'm going mean here, I'm sorry, but I found it a little bit juvenile. I might cut all of this out, I'm probably being kind of a dickhead here, but this review opens with the question, How do you follow up one of the greatest video games of all time? (sighs) Now, maybe this is me showing my old man ass or something, but calling 2018's God of War one of the greatest video games of all time in 2022? Weird, right? It's definitely one of the greatest games of the last five years, probably in the top five of the last five years, no doubt, I'm not disputing that, but using the phrase of all time like that, whew, off to a bad start, right, right out the gate. And then this review jumps straight into, this is the kind of problem Francis Ford Coppola had when creating the sequel to his mob masterpiece, The Godfather. And oh man, I, I don't know why this rubbed me the wrong way. It's probably just the basic bitch film Twitter snob in me that loves The Godfather. That probably took umbrage with this, but I don't even think it's that. I think my real issue with this comparison is it strikes me as something a middle school writer would use to open an essay. I probably did this myself a lot in high school and middle school as a kid. You know, it's such a clunky comparison to say this modern day video game sequel much like The Godfather Part Two, in that it's a sequel to something everybody thought was fantastic. I mean, come on, man. Make a video game comparison. It won't kill you. Uh, how about Majora's Mask, you know? How do you make a sequel to one of the defining games of a console generation? Not unlike when a team at Nintendo is tasked with following up one of the undisputed masterpieces of the Nintendo 64. Zelda Ocarina of Time. How do you follow that? You do it with Majora's Mask. It's that easy. That's such a better comparison. I mean, even that one sounds really aggrandizing, but at least the analogy is a little closer to Earth than this is the Godfather Part 2 of video games. Whoa, whoa. Let's pull it back, Starsky. Um... I'm sorry. Uh, I'm now doing reviews of reviews and that's just not healthy. Let's move right on to the next news item. Anyway, God of War Ragnarok coming out for PS5 on Wednesday. If you have a PS5, I'm sure you're probably getting it because uh, what else are you going to do? It's, you know, you got you to do it. It's one of the reasons why you would own that machine, honestly. Anyways, something else that's not healthy, apparently, is having your company be bought by Embracer Group. Remember them? Uh, Embracer is a Swedish-based game conglomerate that has been gobbling up IP for a while now. Uh, They own Gearbox and THQ Nordic. Uh, Back in May, they purchased Square Enix Montreal and immediately went about renaming it and rebranding it because, well, I mean, yeah, you can't buy something with the name Square Enix in it and keep that name that's a rival company so they changed it to onoma 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 i don't it's o n o m a i'm saying onoma and i'm probably wrong but anyway a full 6 months later after rebranding that company that they bought they decided eh, they're just going to close it down they're going to close the studio costing around 200 people their jobs although some of them were offered position to move over to edios montreal which Embracer also bought from Square Enix during that same deal. Uh, now, what was the studio known for? They did a couple of very successful mobile games based on well-known AAA franchises from Square Enix, Edios, you know, uh, Crystal Dynamite, all of those. Uh, they did the Go games. Hitman Go, Deus Ex Go, Tomb Raider Go. Uh, all very uh, well-received and successful mobile games. Uh, Onoma's Sale was part of a package deal for Embracer, and I think closing them down is kind of a clear strategy to pivot completely away from mobile and casual gaming, and focus on making big AAA blockbuster games out of the big franchises they acquired in that deal, which of course includes Tomb Raider, Deus Ex, uh, Thief, Legacy of Kain, you know, some pretty hallowed IP in the world of PC and console gaming, so... It makes sense from a business standpoint. We want to make sure that these franchises are big, splashy, you know, blockbuster games, not mobile games based on them. Uh, And and those franchises go all the way back to when I was obsessed with getting a, a Tomb Raider TV show a few months ago, if you remember that. Remember when I was talking about that for a couple of weeks? Well, Embracer, turns out, when they bought all of that, Including Tomb Raider, they started talks to make a Tomb Raider anime series with Netflix. So yeah, real monkey's paw for me there. Um, <laughs> I'm not really interested in a Tomb Raider anime. I kind of wanted a live action series that you know cost money, but silly me. We're not we're not here in a this isn't a spend money. This is a make money situation for Embracer. So why would they? Do that. Um, this is a pretty crappy thing, though, the closing of Anoma for, for the people working there. They, they were told this last week in an all hands meeting that basically some of them could go to EDIOS Montreal, the rest of them were shit out of luck. But for us, the consumer, what are we losing alongside this uh, studio? What, what, what is it that we're not going to get because of this? Well, for one thing, they were working on a mobile game based on Avatar The Last Airbender. Damn it. Damn it. I would have played that. If it was Android, I would have played the hell out of that. Uh, I might have even spent money to play that, because I love The Last Airbender, and I am bereft of mobile games to, to play longer than about a week before I delete them. That's kind of... I, I give everything a week. I'm like Sean Hunter on Boy Meets World. I give you two weeks, and then I, you know, scratch your name out of my little black book. Um... <laughs> a really esoteric uh reference i'm sorry but i would have played that and they were also making something based on stranger things kinda um this is it sounds puzzling the way they describe it in uh, the source articles that i read it was it, based on stranger things but it's mainly focused on well the kids on on bicycles it's the phrase i keep reading is kids on bikes the kids on bikes game A Stranger Things game, presumably a mobile game, that consists of the main kids riding their bikes. So, I can only assume this is probably like a riff on the old Paperboy game, if you remember that one. Only instead of dodging like neighborhood dogs and traffic, you're dodging Demogorgons or something, right? Anyway, that's probably not going to happen. That game got shuttered alongside the studio. Edeos Montreal still intact, and they are currently cooking up a bunch of stuff. They're the ones that get to live on to another day. They're cooking up a new Deus Ex game, as well as a partnership with Xbox to develop another game in the Fable franchise, if you like the Fable games. So hopefully the Onoma folks, or Onama, I don't know, whatever it is, hopefully those folks find a spot working on that stuff. But it sucks. Uh, a quality studio that made quality mobile games dying out—that's a shame because we have so few of them. And, and that's pretty much all I had for video games this week. It's just kind of—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's, it's God of War week, so that's—that's that's the big thing happening. Uh, let's let's start the movie section, and let's start with the filth. We've got a real double whammy because this is news. Uh, this is a news story featuring both David Zaslav and J.K. Rowling, in the same breath. Ew. Uh, I promise not to go off on one of my rants about how rich and famous people have broken brains, making it impossible for them to internalize criticism or other points of view. No, I won't say that. Well, I just did. But I will point out how being rich and in charge of a gigantic percentage of mainstream media does apparently make you kind of a clueless idiot. Um, That idiot would be Zaslav in this situation. During a quarter three earnings call the other day, he was asked this this last week what his plans to do differently with Warner Brothers uh, movie division. What, you, what, what are you going to do differently? What are you going to do to improve Warner Brothers uh, motion pictures? And he said, we're going to focus on franchises. Well, yeah, I mean, no shit, dude. But uh, it's it's puzzling how the guy who became a household name this summer for tossing the Batgirl movie in the trash has the balls to phrase it like this. This is what he said, quote, We haven't had a Superman movie in 13 years. We haven't done a Harry Potter movie in 15 years. The DC movies and the Harry Potter movies provided a lot of the profits for Warner Brothers motion pictures over the last 25 years. End quote. Uh, He goes on to talk about the... This is the really weird thing. He goes on to talk about the advantages of having so many franchises uh, to choose from, and he lists Game of Thrones and Sex and the City, as well as reminding everyone that, hey, Warner Brothers still does have the movie rights to Lord of the Rings, even if Amazon has taken over for TV. Uh, there, there, there's a lot to unpack here, even before we get to the statement that actually sparked headlines. But first off, the last standalone Superman movie was in 2013. I am mean, not a mathematician or anything, but it's 2022, making that less than 10 years ago, not 13. Uh, the last Harry Potter movie was in 2011. So yeah, by, by my count, uh, carry the one 11 years, not 15. I'll forgive him for being shitty at math. No problem. It's fine. But it's funny that he doesn't count those Fantastic Beasts movies at all. <laughs> like those just that's not a Harry Potter movie. And then uh, to go on talking about movie franchises by name checking to HBO series franchises. I don't think this guy knows his different divisions from each other. I think that he's uh, not doing it right. If he was trying to say that they want to make Game of Thrones theatrical movies. okay, that makes perfect sense. All you have to do is, you know, say that. Uh, Sex and the City is a weird one to talk about, because they did two movies out of that. One of them did very well, the other kind of didn't, so they brought it back last year as a rebooted show, and that's what it is now. It's It's a television show, it's not a movie franchise, so weird, weird statement. But he went on to say, if we can do something with J.K. on Harry Potter going forward... Uh, yeah, we're focused on franchises. <laughs> he said that if we can do something with J.K. on Harry Potter going forward, essentially we will. Uh, he didn't say that last part, but that's what I'm inf- in, you know, inferring from that. We will. So the main takeaway by a lot of news sites is that among other things that paint David Zaslav as kind of a bung piece... He's trying to get friendly with the turf-in-chief in in order to line her pockets, as well as his and Warner Brothers, with more Harry Potter stories. Uh, Even after all her really bad PR the last few years. uh, It's worth noting that there is currently no Wizarding World projects on the slate right now. Despite the fact that we were supposed to get two more of those Fantastic Beasts movies, uh, those have been kneecapped so hard uh, by Johnny Depp, Ezra Miller, J.K. Rowling herself, it's kind of a parade of shit with poor Dan Fogler marching in the middle of it. I like that guy, I feel really bad that some good work on his part is buried under all of that really, really bad uh, PR, bad marketing, bad just a bad franchise, but yeah, the last wizard shit WB produced was the third of those, which came out with a whimper, and then HBO did the reunion special thingy, which was basically a very expensive DVD special feature, right? That Everybody else got that vibe from it. Laughably, if you haven't watched that thing, it's so funny that J.K. Rowling does not appear in it. And if I remember right, no one at any point mentions her. They, they drive all of the attention away from her and toward the movies. They name check every director. They name check every actor. But not J.K. Rowling herself, Um, yeah, it reeks of, we need to keep our distance from that shitstorm, but that was the old regime at HBO and Warner Brothers. Apparently the new regime wants more Harry Potter and more J.K. Rowling because they're all about franchises. Okay, uh, good luck with that. Pretty soon, Zaslav, that billion dollar hate tank is gonna blow up in your face, but... Probably only after making you another billion dollars, right? So it's not that big of a deal for you. That's how it works, and it's gross. That is gross. Anyway, speaking of HBO Max, movies, and trying desperately to ring just a few more dollars out of something that people stream over and over and over again, have you seen the trailer for this wretched-looking sequel to A Christmas Story? The title is, I kid you not, A Christmas Story Christmas, Woof. Um, I know that that's supposed to be a joke, but woof. Um, Peter Billingsley returns as Ralphie, only now he's an adult man with a family and a couple of decades of pent-up anxiety about the holidays. Someone should really be shouting at him, Tony Stark built Christmas in a cave with a box of scraps! Um... (laughs) If you don't know what the hell I'm talking about, the scientist from Iron Man who gets that yelled in his face, Tony Stark built this in a cave. Uh, That scientist is actually the little boy from A Christmas Story. That's Peter Billingsley, which I find funny. But at any rate, this movie looks like muddled garbage. Uh, The whole ad campaign is essentially, hey, you remember A Christmas Story? Don't you love A Christmas Story? Remember that scene from A Christmas Story? Remember this one? Remember that one? Remember this Christmas classic that you watched on TBS over and over again uh, because they gave up and just started airing it on a loop on Christmas Day? Anyway, the plot is, confusingly, Ralphie being like, Hey, my old man held it together really great and provided a great holiday for us even when we had very little, and I can do the same. Except no. No, I saw the movie, the, the original. The old man did not hold his shit together. He was a cantankerous old bastard who spent more time drinking and obsessing over the fucking leg lamp than he did listening to a word from the mouths of his own kids. I <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of affection for a Christmas story. It's on my list that I have on Letterboxd of movies I don't really understand why they're classics. Like, Field of Dreams, and uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, and The Goonies. I actually have come around on The Goonies, I like that movie, but... uh, Yeah, I don't really know why A Christmas Story is a classic, other than it was just on all the time during the holidays on TV. It strikes me very much as a movie loved and remembered purely because your parents, like, repeated the fragile joke over and over again, you know? Anyway, the new one looks pretty crappy, uh, but you know, they're all about franchises over there at HBO, so <laughs> they needed to make that one into a franchise. You know what streaming movie totally does work, though? The Roku Channel's latest flagship opus, uh, probably their only flagship opus, <laughs> their, their only original movie that I can remember, um, Weird, The Al Yankovic Story absolute success it's funny it's got some wonderful performance uh, moments in it and for a movie with such a tight budget it actually looks really good uh it's visually very pretty it's it's very well put together uh daniel radcliffe totally crushes it as al getting to do a lot of like deadpan comedy but also because the whole thing is played so seriously so straight he gets to do some really fun dramatic stuff that totally works um Evan Rachel Wood is really funny as Madonna, it's just a really good time, it's a really fun movie. If you happen to be a Weird Al fan like I am, if you've seen Al's uh, Behind the Music on VH1 enough times that you know his actual story by heart, this movie is just fall-on-the-floor funny, I kept just losing it laughing. Just a really good concept for uh, a parody of self-serious biopics. And it made for a really great family watch this last weekend, too. My kids watched it. They were kind of baffled by what was going on a lot of it. I had to explain what some jokes were. But it got great reviews, uh, from what I could tell. When it uh, it premiered a few weeks back at a festival, it got great reviews. And the reviews of its streaming, equally good. Uh, I wish I could find numbers on how well it did on the Roku channel. I'd really be interested to see how many people had to figure out what the Roku channel was so that they could watch this movie. But, surprise, I couldn't find that. Um, Yeah, not a lot going on in movie world, honestly. Other than that, Uh, Black Adam is still number one at the box office this week. It's kind of like we're just sitting comfy and waiting for Wakanda Forever to blow the doors off and smash those November records. Uh, I think that will happen, by the way. This is the first Marvel movie in years where I feel the legitimate hype again. You know, that hype that we felt back in the day when a new one would come out. Uh, Meanwhile, I guess we can give a quick update on some of the other news items that don't quite fit anywhere in my categorical bits. Um, A sad one, Aaron Carter died. Yeah, um, pop star Aaron Carter. That sucks. Uh, I remember when that guy was the king of the Disney Channel and the Nickelodeon Channel it was a really strange era for like that pop bubblegum music because his older brother and the other Backstreet Boys, uh, NSYNC and then Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera. I remember a lot of that stuff felt very hypersexual, at least in the mind of like a 10 or 11 year old. Uh, there were girls with the boys faces on their school folders and stuff. Meanwhile, Britney's videos were, let's say, a sobering thing to catch at 6 or 7 a.m. on MTV but Aaron Carter, he was kind of like the last toehold of something a little more age-appropriate, you know, kind of like teeny bopper feeling, but maybe that's just how I remember it, uh, maybe that's just my painted view on the era, but it sucks, it sucks to see a guy go so young, he's, uh, he was my age, he was 34, so, uh, farewell to Aaron Carter, uh, Another headline kind of dominating this week is the continued musking of Twitter, the muskification. Everybody's smelling that musk real, real hard. Um, Sorry, that's a terrible image. Uh, I'm going to skim over things and not get bogged down in it again like I did last week. But suffice it to say, the the big takeaway for me during an investor meeting or something like that this last week, the guy basically broke down how Twitter is going to die a horrible death. He... He mentioned uh, during this uh, announcement or meeting or whatever, while hawking the new eight dollar a month requirement for uh, verification, you got to pay eight dollars a month now for your check mark instead of just being a celebrity or a really good tweeter. You, 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 anybody can have it as long as they pay eight dollars a month. That that sounds like a uh, democratization of Twitter on paper. But really, it's just like uh, he's doing a capitalism on Twitter. Um, yeah, so the verified accounts will get priority in a user's feed over non-verified accounts. okay, makes sense, I guess. Except when you realize that unless you spend $8 a month, your posts are gonna get buried. And unless your friends pay $8 a month, their posts get buried. So you won't see your friends and your friends won't see you, thus kind of ending the social part of the social media website. Um, Unless you spend $8 a month, your posts will be buried and you'll be shadow banned. So yeah, it's a great way to force people to pay for something. But as I said last week, and as that article from The Verge uh, mentioned, it kind of sounds like this, this mofo doesn't understand that A free social media platform means the user base is actually more valuable than the tech stack. He's banking on people needing Twitter more than Twitter needs people, and I can't predict the future or anything, I'm certainly not a tech billionaire, I'm certainly not a genius, he's only one of those things, but I can say with confidence, not a lot of actual real people are going to pay $8 a month for Twitter. No way. No way, no how. A lot of bots, a lot of scammers, perhaps a handful of political weirdos, and all the Elon Musk superfans who think that the smell of the man's farts can somehow power a rocket to Uranus, sure, they'll maybe spend $8 a month. Not the vast majority of people are going to be paying money for the privilege of Twitter. People aren't willing to pay $5 a month for Peacock right now. Why the hell would people pay $8 a month for Twitter? You're insane. Um... That's all I'm going to say about that this week. (laughs) This week. Come at me next week when we see the further deterioration of my social media choice uh, from back in the day. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, getting into the world of comic books, uh, I'm getting a little dismayed at Marvel for having the license to, I mean, damn near everything under the sun. See, I'm a Dark Horse comics fan going way back when, and the day Marvel took away the Star Wars license from Dark Horse, it made perfect sense. I understand that. Disney owns Marvel Comics. They own Star Wars. The original Star Wars comics were a Marvel title. I get it. it, 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 it they would be stupid not to take the series and, and put it in Marvel Comics instead of leaving it with Dark Horse, but it still hurt. Because Dark Horse spent 20 years keeping Star Wars alive in comic book form during the dark times, the the real dark times, when we didn't get Star Wars television shows. We didn't get Star Wars video games very often. Most of what we had were novels and comic books, maybe an RPG game every now and again. But, uh, yeah, uh, because... Uh, It's getting out of hand now, though, because as we all know, Disney owns 20th Century Studios now, formerly 20th Century Fox. So guess what other properties have left the building at Dark Horse in the last few years? Predator and Alien. So this basically leaves Dark Horse with the Mike Minola universe, uh, my personal favorite, Count Crowley. And uh, I don't know, Dark Horse does have their own stable of characters, the, the Dark Horse heroes, like Ghost, X, uh, Barbed Wire, Vortex, nobody remembers any of these characters that I'm mentioning at all. They all fought the mask at one point in the mid-90s. That was when I first got into comic books. That was one of my first comics was, hey, the mask, as in the Jim Carrey mask, the comic books that spawned that movie... The Mask is taking on all the Dark Horse heroes, so it was like him standing over a pile of all of these characters I just mentioned. Uh, King Tiger, people like that. Anyways, uh, yeah, those characters were rebooted a while back, I wonder if we'll see them ever again. But anyway, the latest Fox property that Marvel has decided to adapt into new comic book stories is Planet of the Apes. Uh, those stories are still in early development. It was just kind of announced a while ago. But to whet our apetite, uh, if you will, our appetite, appetite that's my joke, uh, Marvel decided to do some fun variant covers for their existing superhero books that feature the titular apes from Planet of the Apes. So no apes in these stories, just cool collectible variant covers featuring stuff like uh, Scarlet Witch hovering over a field of raging monkeys. Uh, Dr. Zaius pointing in fear at the Silver Surfer flying overhead, Iron Man landing in the shadow of the half-buried Statue of Liberty, Uh, Venom and Psylocke and Ghost Rider, all of them like razzling some gorillas. The covers are really fun. Uh, There's a really good variety of art styles among them, and it has a great, like, what-if appeal. Like, what if Tony Stark landed on the Planet of the Apes, like Charlton Heston did? I mean, if he landed without the suit, uh, I feel like he'd be dead instantly. Like, he'd start talking, and he wouldn't stop until he was dead and mounted like a trophy, right? But in the suit? I don't know. In the suit? Like, uh, we're talking some scared apes. Not bored apes. Just scared shitless apes. That's another thing. He'd definitely make an NFT joke, right, about bored apes. But anyways, uh, those variant covers released for all of the Marvel books uh, coming out February 1st and February 8th, For you collectors of 100% fungible apes. And uh, speaking of Mike Minola, though, uh, the latest uh, story arc in his comic book universe was announced today, actually. I just saw the headline on that. So uh, that's going strong, despite Hellboy's death and the apocalypse destroying the entire world. So, hey, kudos for Dark Horse. Uh, uh, Hats off to them for keeping that going. But anyway, on the opposite side of the block, this week DC has the first issue out of a project that was first announced way back in 2018. Uh, Comics move slow in development, but even for comics, that's a pretty long-ass time. So this series is called Batman and the Joker, The Deadly Duo. And yeah, it's a story wherein Batman and the Joker have to team up. Now, that might cause purists to shit their rompers a little bit, but... I think it's interesting that this has actually never happened before, really, in comics. It's, it's, you know, every once in a while, maybe they'll have to join forces for a hot minute, but not for, like, an entire extended mini series like this. Um, yeah, this is certainly not a mainstream Batman series, though. No, 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 no. This one is dark. Very dark. It's uh, written and penciled by a Mark Silvestri. And according to my source on this over at uh, comicsbeat.com... Uh, he's an old friend of Jim Lee, who encouraged him to create this book and to pitch it to D.C. So the story begins with someone mailing Batman pieces of Jim Gordon. Yeesh. Meanwhile, Harley Quinn has been kidnapped. So the Joker proposes he and Bats team up to find the people that they care about. And there's like a pack of feral creatures roaming around in the city. And in general, just a whole lot of like severed limbs and extremities. So whoo Pretty gnarly, and uh, the art kind of matches that premise in gnarliness. Um, the pencils show that uh, Sylvestri really savoring uh, his opportunity to do something pulpy and noirish in uh, DC and in Gotham City. Lots of uh, loose crosshatch textures and a really desaturized uh, color palette makes for like a really like uh, dark sketchbook dynamic. But then it draws your eyes to the little splashes of color and and hard detail, like characters' eye lines and stuff. There's a really good page uh, on that comic book, uh, that comicsbeat.com article about this of Harley Quinn, her eye line, you know, being really the center of of the the panel. Uh, yeah, it's it's really cool. It's very appropriate for Gotham City and. Characters that are showing up in the book, like Harvey Bullock, who's right at home in, like, the pulp detective kind of story that seems to be at play. And, you know, I mean, it really is fitting for, like, two weirdos who hate each other having to work together to stop a much worse psycho. I like that. I think it's a good idea. So, check that out. Uh, Issue number one is available right now. Okay, and uh, we're in the last bit now. We're taking it down to TV. It's the final countdown. But uh, we've got so much TV news to talk about this week. It's all over the place. Let's get it going with a uh, first off, a quick review, quick TV review for you. I tried out that blockbuster show on Netflix. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? Suddenly I'm Jay Leno. Uh, They tapped Vanessa Ramos, who's a writer from uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Superstore. So, you know, very embedded in the whole idea of workplace comedy sitcoms. Uh, and they, they tapped her to create a workplace comedy sitcom set at the very last Blockbuster video store, uh, which is a real thing, by the way. <laughs> there is one last Blockbuster that's still alive and kicking. But the show for Netflix uh, stars fan favorites Melissa Fumero and Randall Park. That sounds like an easy win, right? Randall Park, always good. Uh, Melissa Fumero, terrific on 99. 9 Uh, Blockbuster itself lends to jokes, you know, about nostalgia, obsolescence, uh, movie references aplenty, stupid customers, you know, kind of the the stuff that I love, clerks-type humor, right? Um, How could it fail? Well, it it kind of failed. (laughs) I mean, uh, Netflix just plain doesn't know how to produce sitcoms. I'm sorry. Every one of them that I've ever tried... It has the same problem. Do you ever watch a Netflix branded, like Netflix created sitcom? Uh, I think the only one I've ever liked was One Day at a Time. But uh, I remember watching the first episode of The Ranch. If you remember that one, uh, before we found out that one of the stars was a rapist, gruesome shit, man. Uh, Blockbusters isn't much. Uh, Blockbuster is not much better than The Ranch. It's got that same problem that a lot of those Netflix shows have. The pilot episode does a terrific job of thoroughly establishing every single member of the ensemble and their dynamic without having a single actual joke. You know what it reminded me of? This is a really sad thing to think about. Speaking of clerks, uh, some of you probably don't remember this. A couple of years ago, Kevin Smith tried to make a sitcom about the clerks (laughs) in a weed dispensary. And unfortunately, Netflix had already beaten him to the punch with that Kathy Bates show. Another instance of, wow, this is a great cast. This is very well put together sets, a very solid premise. Where the hell are the jokes? Why why are there no laugh moments in this show? But so unfortunately, Kevin Smith had to shoot his uh, kind of out of pocket and uh, release it on one of those really experimental platforms at the time where they were like, people were always trying to like, how do we take the concept of Kickstarter and use it to make the next Netflix somehow? Like people were really trying to use the crowdfunding uh, idea and just run it into the ground. And this one had a really strange concept where you get the pilot of a show for free. And then if you like it, you can kick money into it and essentially invest in or fund the content that you wanted to watch terrible business model though because essentially he shot a couple episodes and then it just went nowhere uh but i watched the pilot and it had three things in common with this blockbuster show it was a workplace comedy it had literally no laughs in it at all for me and it also had jb smooth in it i don't know why i don't really care for his comedic delivery I'm, I'm sure he's better like with his own material i don't know if he does like stand-up and whatnot but with normal sitcom cadence jokes there's just no real setup and payoff to the way he says his lines, so it really kind of bugged me. It really took me out of both shows. But anyway, Blockbuster is wretched. Uh, I'm sorry to say, I really wanted that to work because I like everybody involved. It makes me sad on a lot of levels because I like all the people involved, and I also hold some affection for the actual last Blockbuster store because it's here in Oregon, uh, in central Oregon, in a city called Bend. Uh, so yeah, uh, Sorry, that didn't work. Uh, Blockbuster, I, I would really doubt it if that got more than a second season. It's Netflix, so they always do that thing where we'll give it a second season even though nobody watched it. And then after the second season, it's like, well, donezo, no way. Um, so yeah, that's probably what's going to happen there. Anyway, next item, uh, we talk about HBO beefing up the Christmas spirit this year with uh, <laughs> A Christmas Story Christmas. But what of Peacock? What of Peacock? Well, Peacock is getting a big beefing up of its library for the holidays as well in the form of the Hallmark Channel. Not only is that massive wave of rom-coms about busy, big city muckety-mucks learning about small-town country living and the spirit of Christmas uh, coming to the streamer, but Hallmark will actually have its own hub on Peacock, including live feeds to the several cable channel variants of the Hallmark. I didn't, I had no idea there were more than one Hallmark channel, but hey, this is similar to what NBC has on Peacock now that their contract with Hulu finally expired. So if you're the type who throws on a dopey holiday sweater and turns on All I Want for Christmas is You Part 6 while you bake cookies and stuff, hey, you now have a reason for a Peacock account. Uh, how do you like them candy apples? (laughs) I never imagined that I would be, like, a staunch advocate for Peacock, but they're the little engine that could. I really want to see them succeed because they're trying stuff. Um, But And this holiday stuff, actually pretty big business, this kind of content. Because, as I think we're all aware, streaming services have kind of a double-edged sword when it comes to people's uh, viewing habits. Uh, They produce big, splashy new content that lots of people watch, just in like one week and then it's never seen again because it's the big new thing. Things like Ring of Power, Stranger Things, etc. Then there's the other side of the business that largely consists of the things that we all put on in the background over and over and over again. Things like The Office, Seinfeld, Friends, right? Those are arguably bigger business over a longer stretch of life on a streaming platform, which is why whenever they move platforms, it's such big news. Well... Cheapo holiday romantic comedies starring Melissa Joan Hart, those fit that category for a lot of people. Especially from November 1st through December 31st. That's like peak time for that stuff. And you can make roughly 15 of the damn things and only reach a small fraction of the budget of, say, a Batgirl or a Gray Man or what have you. What was that that sci-fi one with Chris Pratt that Amazon did? The Tomorrow War. Yeah, you can make a ton of Christmas rom-coms for one of those and get probably a lot more clicks, a lot more views, a lot more sustained viewing numbers. But hey, this is big for Peacock. This makes them legit competition in this very specific area of viewing against, say, Netflix, who usually they produce their own cheapy holiday movies for this. So I say good for Peacock. I'm certainly not going to watch any of that stuff. Not even ironically, sorry, it's just not my jam. Uh, my month of holiday-themed streaming was October, and I had a productive one. I think I watched at least 50 horror movies. Uh, thanks to my recovery from surgery and whatnot, I had the time for it. But I'm not a big Christmas guy at all. Uh, I did have a very big crush on Lacey Chabert, though, so so that's something. That might be something that draws me in. Uh, I mean, I had a big crush on Lacey Chabert when I was, like, 11, because... Yeah, man. Party of five. Woo! Anywho, next item. Uh, Speaking of me binging horror stuff during October, we got a great Halloween announcement that I didn't see until after I uploaded the spooky episode, which wasn't that spooky. But this is an announcement that has all the elements, man. Uh, A Friday the 13th prequel series being developed by A24 and Brian Fuller, and yes, coming to peacock um, peacock man it's all happening it's all happening uh the show will be called crystal lake and it will uh, it was the subject of a long protracted battle for the rights between um the original director of the first friday the 13th sean cunningham and the screenwriter of the original victor miller and then keep in mind the franchise started at paramount and ended up going to new line cinemas so all over the place, real nightmare to put something like this together, which is why it took so long. Uh, this is one of those things like, you remember how Brian Fuller created Hannibal? You remember that after Hannibal, uh, like a couple of years later, only like maybe a year or two ago, there was that show for a hot minute called Clarice about Clarice Starling. You remember how the show Clarice couldn't legally feature Hannibal Lecter or anything from the Lecter series except for Clarice Starling herself? This was about to be one of those things, since the rights to Jason Voorhees and the Hockey Mask and even the Friday the 13th title are all separate things that have their own owners, and uh, uh, Victor Miller, the screenwriter, won the custody hearing, so to speak, from Sean Cunningham for the rights to the original story. Luckily, he's partnering with a uh, Rob Barsamian, who owns the other pieces, so they're exec producing the series together. Uh, So all that stuff could appear at one point or another. Everything's on the table. Hockey mask, giant uh, zombie uh, killer and all that stuff. It'll all eventually happen if the show goes on long enough. They're calling it kind of a drama, though. So people are predicting maybe this is more akin to Bates Motel, the Psycho prequel series. I think this has the potential to be great. I think, you know, Brian Fuller, I trust him. He does great stuff. I loved Hannibal so much. In my mind, the best way to do this is maybe like a time jumping kind of thing, almost like Yellow Jackets, like telling two parallel stories, one in the late 50s when Jason drowns in the lake and his mother loses it, and then the other in like 1980 when the camp is reopened. You could do two different period pieces at once like that, That might be too much. They could move up the timeline so that Jason is a kid who drowns in the early 80s, and then the campus reopened, like, now. That also would work, and it'd be kind of fun to update the series like that, and and it would be its own kind of timeline that way. But, uh, yeah, who knows? But I think it's safe to say the hockey mask and the immortal zombie slasher fella Probably that's like season two or three at least, right? We're probably going to focus on Mrs. Voorhees, Mama Voorhees, for the first season at least. So start your casting rumors now, folks. I already planted my flag on Twitter. Uh, If you follow me on Twitter, you saw me say, I'm planting my flag. Who plays Mrs. Voorhees if the show centers on her? Who could you see playing an unhinged woman in two different time periods, like 30 years apart, who could conceivably choke slam a 20-year-old man if necessary. That's a really tough one. That's a very, very niche uh, thing to find. Me? I'm thinking Allison Janney, man. Allison Janney would be perfect. I would readily accept her being a 42-year-old in, like, the 50s or the 80s, and then a 72-year-old now or in the 80s, you know, depending on the timeline. And depending on the makeup and the hair, they'd really have to accentuate, Uh, you know, the difference between the two timelines with her, but I would love to see her play completely crazy. Crazy as a shithouse rat, as my brother likes to say. Uh, I wouldn't want to fight Alison Janney, either. She definitely could kick your ass, no matter who you are. Anyway, stay tuned on news about Crystal Lake, uh, coming soon to Peacock. Peacock, the secret success I maintain. Anyway, next item, last item of the day here. Uh, Amazon has their own streaming series based on an existing franchise, uh, so to speak. I think it's great that someone on Amazon realized, hey, we're still technically the biggest book retailer on the planet. That's our origin story. We started selling books online. What if, for our streaming video app, We specialized in adapting the most airport paperback novels that we could into TV shows. Like, that's their wheelhouse for some reason. Sure, they have Lord of the Rings now, but remember, they have Jack Ryan, Jack Reacher, uh, Bosch, if you remember Bosch. Hardly anybody remembers Bosch, I'm guessing. And now they have Alex Cross, kids. Remember Alex Cross? First, we had a couple of classic late-90s, early-aughts, Ashley Judd-branded mysteries. Uh, That was its own genre back then. Uh, Those starred Morgan Freeman as Alex Cross in uh, Kiss the Girls and Along Came a Spider, I think was the other one. And uh, those were great lazy afternoon watches, my friends. Check those out if you can find them uh, streaming somewhere. Then, about ten years ago, they tried rebooting Alex Cross as uh, more of a badass starring um, Tyler Perry. That didn't work out for, I would say, some obvious reasons. But that was the attempt to make him more of a hard-boiled action character like Jack Reacher. And, you know, it makes sense you would want to try making that a franchise. There are 29 books starring Alex Cross. So, yeah, Amazon, they decided, let's do a series. They did a series that's It's a go for, uh, uh, apparently it's been in the works for like two years with Skydance TV and Paramount TV uh, kind of uh, collaborating on it. They they also collaborated on both Jack Ryan and Reacher, so it's a proven formula for them. It's a proven formula for Amazon. This is what they do. They do this deliberately. They're the ones scouring the supermarket book section looking for their next franchise. God love them. Uh, This version is going to star none other than Hawkman himself, Aldous Hodge. I love Aldous Hodge. I've been a fan of this guy since he was the funny techie guy on Leverage, which was, I thought, a fun show. Uh, he He played that right off the back of being the evil shithead quarterback on Friday Night Lights. So the dude has some range, and from what I hear, his Hawkman in the Black Adam movie, also a great time. He's one of the highlights of that movie. I've been waiting for this guy's career to take off for 10 years now. I keep saying, put this guy in a Star Wars spinoff movie. Back when we had those, he would have been a great member of the team in Rogue One. I think I fan-casted Hodge as Blade once, too, when back during the days where we didn't have a Blade coming out like five years down the line. Uh, this might be the best use of his talent, though, actually, playing somebody like Alex Cross. A guy with, you know, palpable intelligence, but also a badass energy. A real single-minded hunter of serial killers. That's good casting. That sounds like a show I'd watch. Uh, uh, I'm excited. Cross. That's the name of the show. It's just going to be Cross. Uh, It's been given a full season order at Amazon, naturally. They don't really do just like pilot season anymore. So look out for that soon. I think it's going to be a big one. I'm going to watch the shit out of it myself. And, yeah, that's all the news that's fit to podcast, my dear listeners. Thank you for tuning in and hanging out, as always. If you have a tip about a show, a movie, an actor, a comic book, a video game, just or just anything cool that you want me to talk about on here, drop me a line at mediasandwichshow at gmail.com or over on Twitter, uh, <laughs> for now, <laughs> for now, at media underscore sandwich, uh, guess what? I've got a lifeboat picked out. Uh, when, whenever, whenever the iceberg finally does hit and Twitter becomes unusable, uh, we've got a Tumblr for the show and the blog, and for me personally, it's all going to be in one spot instead of separate accounts for me and the show. I decided no Kyle, no Kyle Tumblr, just media-sandwich on Tumblr. So tumblr.com slash media-sandwich. I warn you right now, because it's going to be my personal account, too, if if the day comes. Uh, there's lots of Seattle Kraken hockey talk, a lot of Star Wars stuff that'll be mixed in there, a lot of horror movie stuff, because it's going to be my only account. Uh, I hope you all might dig that. There's no film Tumblr that I can uh, grasp the way there's a film Twitter. That's going to be an adjustment for me. That's going to trip me up, if indeed we have to abandon ship. But I am on Twitter still at media underscore sandwich and also at kyle martinak until it becomes unusable so check me out there for now and do be sure to subscribe to the podcast and write me a review let me know how your sandwich tasted if you will and until next week i'm kyle martinak and i'm gonna go have a sandwich yes indeed.